So I guess today I just want to really reaffirm what the Holy Spirit was saying to us yesterday. And I think that is um, so important because when we come together like this, uh, we have a chance to hear together what the Spirit is saying. Uh, I always remember that Paul didn't say to the Corinthians, I have the mind of Christ or you have the mind of Christ, but he declared we have the mind of Christ. So I'm going to open our Bibles this morning at Matthew 3.16. Okay, so that's not maybe as familiar as John 3.16, but we're just going to read three verses, um, actually six verses in Matthew, because we're going to straddle two chapters. Obviously, in the original, there was no chapter break there. So we're beginning to read from Matthew 3.16. And this, of course, is the baptism of Jesus. And it says from verse 16, after he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and settling on him. And behold, a voice from the heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And I think some translations say that keeps proceeding, a stream of words that keeps proceeding out of the mouth of God. Now, we'll come back to that scripture at the end, and I'll show you why. But first, I need to begin by telling you about a little incident that happened in my life when I was a student many years ago in London. A friend of mine invited me to go sailing with him. And uh, I'd never been sailing before. And to be honest, I was a bit nervous because I can't really swim. But he gave me a life jacket and off we went and uh, out into a very deep lake in his little yacht. And it seemed like a good day for sailing because it was extremely windy, uh, which I guess is a good day for sailing if you know what you're doing. <laughs> As it transpires, neither of us knew what we were doing. So the wind starts to blow very strong and uh, very quickly the boat actually capsized and I was thrown out into the water, and he was as well. And I must say, when I hit the water, I was absolutely terrified. I thought, this is it, I've, I've had it. Um, but he immediately began to swim around and to stand in the hull, and he started to shout instructions to me, you know, and he grabbed a rope that was hanging off the mast, and he said, Phelan, I'm going to pull this mast up, and as I pull it up, the wind is going to take the sails, and the boat's going to take off again, so you better throw yourself back into the boat when I say go. <laughs> So off he did, he did that, and I threw myself back into the boat, and off we went again. But it was so windy, we were just completely out of control. And within a few moments, the boat had capsized a second time. And so I went into the water again. Now this time, I felt a little bit less frightened than the first time. And again, we went through the same rigmarole again. I threw myself into the boat, it took off again. We were still out of control. And the third time, the boat capsized, and I hit the water a third time. But you know what? The third time I went into the water, I was laughing my head off. I was really enjoying myself because now I was convinced. I was absolutely persuaded that the life jacket, the thing I had put on, what I was connected to, what my life was in union with, was strong enough to overcome the environment I was in. And once that truth was established in my heart, my vision lifted off myself and my fears, and I began to appreciate the environment I was in. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote that there was a time in his ministry in the province of Asia where things got so bad that he despaired of making it out alive. But in looking back at that time, the Lord showed him that through that season, there was a powerful truth 
that had become established in his life. And he wrote about that truth in 2 Corinthians 1.9. He wrote, but this happened, that we may not depend on ourselves, but on a God who raises the dead. And what I want to share with you this morning is that I believe that the Lord knows that there are seasons and environments in this life we will find ourselves in, where from the natural appearance of the situation, we are completely out of our depth. Yet these are the very places and seasons in life where there comes an equipping to see beyond the natural appearance of things, to experience the overcoming life that we are in communion with through Christ, to experience the reality of God with us to a degree we have not before. You know, yesterday, Simon pointed out that wonderful story of Elisha and his servant being surrounded and outnumbered by an enemy army. Two men can face exactly the same situation, but see two entirely different things, depending on whether they're seeing from a mere natural perspective or seeing by the spirit. And I loved what Paul Manwaring said yesterday several times as he was speaking about culture. And he related the establishment of a culture as akin to directing people's vision and how important it is when we understand that, that what we see is what we become. As a man thinks, so he is. And several times Paul mentioned the transformative effect on the thinking or the vision, the seeing of an organization by simply starting every meeting with good news. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit never starts any meeting with believers in any other way. You see, he simply cannot but address us in a victorious manner because he can only speak the truth. And the truth that he sees is that Christ and him crucified is sufficient for all our needs, for all seasons and all situations. Now, Simon so beautifully brought this out yesterday that that doesn't mean that the overcoming life he gifts us is a life apart from trouble. But rather, in fact, it is in the midst of trouble that we first discover the power of this life to uphold us when all around us are sinking. So we could say the light shines in the darkness. And at the end of the day, all the darkness can really do is better reveal the light in all its glory. And I believe it is in the very seasons of life when nothing looks like it has been accomplished that the Lord most insists on speaking to us as if all that needs to be done has been done. And he does that because he can only speak the truth and the sufficiency of Christ's work, because that's the truth as seen from eternity. That's the truth as seen from the heavenly realm. Now, in this life, we take our name, you see, we take our identity, we take our vision, you could say our culture, either from one of two places, either from the spirit of the world or the spirit that comes from God. And we know what the scripture says about not being conformed to one spirit, but to the other, to be transformed. You see, the spirit of the world names you after your works for the world declares you must do in order to become in other words you must produce your own name i mean that's almost like the way we normally greet each other how are you doing <laughs> now listen to what paul said to the corinthians in first corinthians 2 12 now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from god so that we may know the things freely given to us by god you know, I believe the first thing God wants us to know that has been freely given to us is our name. This name, this holy calling is described for us in 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 as not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from before 
the foundation of the world, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I love that. Really, it's the, the gospel that brings the revelation of our true name. No wonder Jesus could say to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans, because he knew that the Holy Spirit would impart to them and to us our identity, the spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. You see, just as I had to fall into that lake to discover the power of the life jacket to bear me up, I believe there are environments and seasons in life that by the grace of God enable us to discover which spirit we have allowed to name us, the spirit of the world or the spirit that comes from God. You see, the name the world gives you will seem utterly reasonable, rational, fair, because it's the name you deserve according to your works. But the name the Lord gives us seems utterly unreasonable. It's irrational. It seems downright foolish, for he doesn't name you according to your works. But as we've just heard, he names us according to his purpose and grace given to us in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the world. Now, that's well before our performance. Uh, and that is, seems very unfair. I mean, you just ask the neighbors of Zacchaeus in Jericho as they hear Jesus looking up into that tree and naming who they see as the greatest thief in the city, naming him as the one chosen to share his life with that day, to share his good name with. Or listen to the protests of Gideon at being called mighty warrior whom the Lord is with. Now Gideon takes some persuading because in his own words, all he has seen for years is that he is exactly not the person the Lord is with. Or as he puts it, for if the Lord is with us, where are all the miracles our fathers have spoken about? And why has all this happened to us? Or how about we go back to where Dom took us yesterday to Acts 9. I love that passage. And listen to the protests of Ananias, who on hearing the Lord tell him to go and speak to Saul of Tarsus, he proceeds to tell the Lord who Saul is. In the words of Ananias, according to many people. In other words, I'll tell you who he is, Lord, according to the spirit of the world. I am speaking this morning about a season we're in, where all the usual works that we could point to right now to identify ourselves as Christians, our plans, our programs, our buildings, have all been stripped away. And if the truth be known, I would say that many ministers, perhaps even some in this room, are thinking of this time as one of the lowest points they have known in ministry. For it seems that the locusts are eating up much of what we have worked to plant over the years. But I have to tell you this morning, I can only find an excitement in my spirit because all I can find in God's word is that men and women seem to break through best into an epiphany, a revelation of how God sees them, not when they're standing on the mountaintop being lauded by the world as a success, but when they're standing like Gideon in a hole in the ground, having known nothing but failure to produce. And that's why I love that account in Acts 9 of the Lord speaking to Saul of his heavenly calling, his heavenly name, a light to the Gentiles, because he speaks this to Saul, not when Saul is repenting and dust and ashes, but when he's full of fury and hatred, breathing out threats against the church. You see, the world only deems to consider us worthy to speak to according to our works, but we have a God who meets us at our worst, and at that point calls us by his eternal name for us the one I was dying to be with even from before the foundation of the world. 
But how are men to be whom he calls them to be unless they believe? And how are they to believe his name for them unless they hear it spoken? And how are they to hear of the Spirit if there is not someone to speak of the Spirit? How many souls of Tarsus in this generation are still breathing out hate because they're still awaiting the Ananias in the church to breathe in the Spirit and begin to see them not according to their deeds, but according to the Spirit? I love that passage in Acts 9 because the Spirit says such amazing things to Ananias. In fact, he says three things which really blow your mind when you begin to think about the implications for us today. The first thing the Lord said to Ananias was, I have a name. I have a calling for Saul of Tarsus that no one in the world knows about, not even Saul. The second thing he says is, Ananias, I have a name for you that you know nothing about. You are the man who goes to Saul of Tarsus to tell him his real name, my name from my holy calling. And the third thing the Lord says to Ananias is so funny. He says, I am so confident in effect, he's saying, I'm so confident of who you are, Ananias, that I've already given Saul a dream in which he sees you going to him and laying hands on him to regain his sight. So you'd better go. Now, we have no time to dwell on that this morning, but what a beautiful picture of two lives being intertwined with the life of the Spirit. And I believe we have a great responsibility to each other and a great privilege of seeing each other, especially when we gather together like this, of seeing each other and speaking to each other, not according to our works. And how difficult is that in a small place like the Apostolic Church? And we all know each other and know our history so well. But I believe the Holy Spirit will help us not to see each other or speak to each other according to our works, but according to the Spirit. For such words call us upwards in Christ into our shared inheritance, the mind of Christ. You know, I think the most beautiful part of that whole story of Ananias and Saul are the two words that Ananias speaks out over Saul that cause something like scales to fall from Saul's eyes. To the man who supervised the death of Stephen, Ananias's first words are, brother Saul. If Ananias had only seen Saul by the spirit of the world, according to many people, only knew him after the flesh, then the best he could have done was to call him out. But we have been given the Holy Spirit that we could see further than seeing people after the flesh. We can do better than calling people out. We can call them up. And I believe that's why Jesus said the least in the kingdom of God is greater than the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. But we can only do that when we see them by the Spirit. And how are we, how are we to see them by the Spirit if we haven't yet seen ourselves by the Spirit? And how are our eyes to open if there is no one to speak to us? as Ananias spoke to Saul. So I want to ask you a question this morning. How do we know if we're beginning to see people as God sees them? And I think Dom gave us the answer yesterday. You see, we begin to speak to them with the heart of a father, not a manager. That's how we know we're beginning to see them. And that's why I love what Dom shared yesterday about how he'd found it such a help in dealing with people in the church, even older folk, by imagining them as children. You see, that vision of a father is so important if we were to call people upwards in Christ out of the soulish realm where they remain self-centered because they can only see their lack because they are being continually pointed to their performance and up into their life in Christ where they can see by the spirit that even on the worst day of their life, they lack no good thing in Christ for they are the accepted and the beloved. 
Now this difference between speaking to people according to their works, their performance, and speaking to them according to their true worth, according to the spirit, is the difference between speaking as a manager and speaking as a father. And if multitudes in the church are not growing up into the mind of Christ, are still not seeing themselves after the spirit, could it be because we too can still look at the church today and say what Paul said, and indeed what we heard yesterday. You have 10,000 guardians, 10,000 instructors, 10,000 managers, but not many fathers. You see, a manager can give you great advice that can result in increased productivity in your life. But unfortunately, managerial language tends to speak to us of who we could be one day if we, rather than speak to us as who we are today, because he. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, we've been talking about culture and the danger is that such a language creates a culture of good advice, not good news. And where that culture eventually leads to is the local church blending right in on Main Street alongside all the other charitable organizations who are also offering good advice and serving better coffee than we do. You see, keep watering down the good news of what he has done with a little good advice on what we still need to do. And the result is that many of us as believers struggle to see ourselves as who we now are in Christ, who we are in the Father's eyes, because our vision is being formed by the words of people who see us primarily as workers for his kingdom rather than sons in his kingdom. <clears throat> now, our father never looks at his children primarily as workers. You know, Nicola and I, we have <coughs> four wonderful children and they've all grown up to do entirely different things to work in different fields, but they weren't birthed out of our need to have people doing that work. We named them and we've always spoken to them as the apple of our eye, irrespective of their productivity. A father does not value or measure his children's worth according to their performance. And that's why a father can impart what a manager can never impart. He can impart a revelation of identity that transcends earthly performance. He can impart the life of a son, not the life of an employee. You see, when believers come to see that they are a Christian, not because of their new behavior, but because of their new birth, that they're saved by grace through faith and this not of themselves, a remarkable thing happens. They finally stop trying to be a Christian and start living as a child of God because they begin to see themselves as their father sees them, hidden with Christ and God. To see yourself the way the father sees you is to be filled with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. And any believer <clears throat> full of thanksgiving is always holier by accident than the most sin-conscious, self-absorbed zealot. You know, <clears throat> irrespective of the way he finds them, either returning from the world stinking of drink or working away in the church stinking of self-righteousness, the father always greets his children in the same way as the apple of his eye, a cause for rejoicing. You see, irrespective of whether you're a Gideon hiding in a wine press or Joshua or looking at the size of Jericho's walls, you are greeted as victorious before there appears to be any natural evidence of that victory, any evidence that God is with you. And that's why inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul greets his churches irrespective of the moral failures or the heresy at work in their lives. He greets them as the saints in Corinth, the saints in Ephesus, the saints in Philippi, not the sinners, because he understands that their fundamental lack is not willpower, it's vision. 
Now, his message to the Corinthians was not try harder. It was see further. Can't you see that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? Can't you see that all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God? Can't you see that you were raised with Christ? Well, therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind in the things that are above, not in the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's Colossians 3, 1 to 4. You know, you see, the spirit of the world can only speak to us of what our lives could be one day. Only the spirit that comes from God can say to us, your life is. Because the spirit that comes from God comes from a father. And a father imparts the life of a son, not the life of an employee working his way towards a promotion. Now, of course, yes, Paul had instructions. He had instructions for his church on their behavior. But he knew that unless their eyes opened to who they already were in Christ and what they already had, all things every blessing in the heavenly realm, they would continue, as Simon said yesterday, to grasp for the things of this world. Because as long as people can't see their true value, they will strive to make themselves more valuable by grasping for stuff. Yes, the Lord did have some instructions for Gideon, but the first thing that had to happen was for Gideon to see who he was in God's eyes, mighty warrior whom the Lord is with. And yes, the Lord did have some instructions for, Jer for Joshua on how he was to take Jericho. But before that, it is recorded in Joshua 6 that the first thing the Lord required of Joshua was to see. You know, and so many times in my life, the Lord has brought me back to Joshua 6, verse 1 and 2. It says this, Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in, no one came out. And then the Lord said to Joshua, See. I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with his king and his fighting men. You know, I love that. Let's apply that to our situation today. Because of the pandemic, the whole nation was shut up and nobody went out and nobody came in. And the Lord said to the apostolic church, see, I have given this nation into your hands. So what I'm saying this morning is that if this year has been a season where we've been stripped of so much of what we have been busy with, and perhaps much that we have been unknowingly drawing our identity from, our name from, then this is one of the best seasons in life, the best places to hear God speak to us, our true name. You see, the wilderness, the place of no natural resources, where the Spirit takes us to root and ground us in the sufficiency, in fact, in the abundance of the resources we have in the Spirit. In other words, it's where the Lord raises up his prophets. It always has been. In the wilderness, he raises up our capacity to see provision where natural eyes only see lack. And the greatest provision he wants us to see is his presence with us, his shared life. You know, this has been a dark period in many people's lives, but it is in the dark that he trains us to see in the dark. You know, in the natural, if you're in a very well-lit, bright house and you walk out in the middle of the night into the pitch black, for a time, you'll see virtually nothing. But after a while, your eyes begin to adapt and you begin to see further than you could before. In other words, your eyes become trained to see in the dark. Now, I think I mentioned on Monday that at the beginning of lockdown, I felt the Lord checked me about wishing these days away or thinking of them as lesser days because I wasn't getting anything done. When in reality, 
These were days to lift my eyes higher than what I was doing and instead look to see my life from his perspective. You know, and I did wonder how long will that take for me to see that way? And one day as I was thinking about this, this phrase dropped into my spirit. You can't train people to see in the dark who haven't been in the dark long enough to see through it. You can't train people to see in the dark who haven't been in the dark long enough to see through it. The ministry of the Spirit is to open our eyes to what Paul called in 1 Corinthians 2.12, the things freely given to us by God, the things that are ours in Christ. Now, we could also call those the things that remain ours because of what he has done, not because of what we could do. But often, as Simon shared yesterday, the greatest opportunity we get to see these things that remain is during a shaking season, when what can be shaken falls down to reveal more clearly to us what cannot be shaken. Or in the words of another of Jesus' teachings, and to echo what Paul Manwaring said again yesterday, it's only when the storm comes that men get to see if they are building their lives on a foundation that remains or in one that is washed away like sand. Have we built our lives on who he says we are because of what he has done? Or have we been building our lives in who men say we are because of what we have done? The Lord doesn't allow these seasons to put an end to our ministries. These experiences are in fact the nursery where the most supernatural aspect of our ministries are established and nurtured in our soul, our eternal calling, our identity, our name. This is the preparation for the real battle ahead because the Lord knows that the fundamental issues of ministry and discipleship hinge not on the question of what we should be doing, but rather who are we? Are we those whom the Lord is with or not? You know, when Saul challenged David, as to where his confidence and authority came from, it was to his experience in the wilderness that David pointed, because it, was, because it was there when he was all alone and out of his depth that he too learned that this happened, that he would not depend on himself, but on the God who raises the dead. You see, to me now, the real question for us now as a church is not what will we be doing, but who will be doing it? Will we be living more like Saul or David? Saul was seeing only by natural vision, and so he couldn't see past the size of Goliath, the size of the lack in his life, because you see, natural vision can't see past the size of the lack. But David was seeing by the spirits, and such vision sees through, sees beyond the size of the lack to see the size of the provision. One vision sees Goliath as too big to defeat. The other sees him as too big to miss. In the wilderness of this past year, no one here has heard the enemy say, what do you think you're doing? We've all heard a different question. Who do you think you are now? Look at the lack in your life. Are you really the chosen, the called of God? Where is the proof of that in what you have produced? Now, we began by reading in Matthew's gospel that after 40 days in the wilderness, this is the accusation Jesus comes up against, the one that questions his identity. If you are the son of God, then why has all this happened to you? Where is the provision of your father now? If you are the son of God, you should have the power to be your own provider. You should be able to produce this abundant life in the visible realm. In other words, the enemy is that he wants to draw our beliefs, our life. He wants us to draw those things from the natural realm, from the natural appearance of things. But to build your beliefs, your life, on the appearance of the natural realm, on what men say about you, feels great, 
when things are going well and you appear to be successful and blessed. But when the storm comes and when the wilderness comes and you find that the life you were feeding off has dried up and there is little or no thanksgiving left in your heart, that is the time of the awakening. As Paul said yesterday again, that's the time of the awakening to the truth that the only life that does not let you down, the only stream that does not dry up in any season of life is not the view and opinion of men on you, but the view and opinion of God, <laughs> the doxa, the glory of God. Jesus was strong in spirit because for 40 days he had been drinking deeply of the words of his father at his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And those words came before Jesus had done one miracle. In other words, his ministry wasn't in order to attain or achieve the love of his father, but rather was flowing from the love of his father in him. Ministry wasn't where Jesus got his identity from. I'll say that again. Ministry wasn't where Jesus got his identity from. He got that straight from the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we too have got to the place in the wilderness where we are no longer living just by what this world feeds us, but are drinking in the words of the Father, his name for us, then we too are ready to go out into this world in the power of the Spirit. In other words, as full of thanksgiving in the worst days as we are in the best days. And by such a life, the will of the Father is seen and done on the earth as it is in heaven, because 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us that to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances is the will of God for all men in Christ Jesus. And that's why I love that image that Simon brought us yesterday of Paul and Silas in total lockdown in that jail in Philippi, bursting with thanksgiving to the utter astonishment of the other prisoners. Because once again, we see men at the lowest point of their lives experience the highest experience men can know, the voice of the Father calling them by name. Behold, my beloved sons, with whom I'm well pleased. No wonder they were rejoicing. The Christian life is Christ's life, the life of a much-loved son. Our witness is to live that life now, because only the life of a much-loved son can reveal the reality of a loving father. No wonder when his disciples asked him, Jesus, teach us how to relate properly to God. He said, you must begin here. Our father, who art in heaven. What a place to begin. Can you see that Jesus was asking them to begin from the highest of heights? Our father, who art in heaven, is not a statement of a goal to be reached, but an identity to be birthed from by the spirit. The highest life any man can live is a life of someone who believes God to be their father. Such a man or woman doesn't need the trappings of earthly power to know their worth. By natural sight, Jesus standing beaten and bloodied before Pilate didn't look much like a king, but Pilate was deeply disturbed because he could sense the authority of a king because authority is knowing who you are. Ministry wasn't where Jesus got his identity from. The Lord has not allowed this season or any wilderness experience to put an end to our ministries. These experiences are in fact the nursery where the most supernatural aspect of our ministries are being established 
and nurtured in our souls, our eternal calling, our identity, our name. Because to come out of the desert knowing your name is to come out in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Bless you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Father, just thank you this morning that today there'll be such a flow of your Spirit in our lives that when we speak to each other, when we greet each other, something in us will leap as John the Baptist leapt in Elizabeth's womb on hearing the greeting of Mary, on hearing the greeting of someone carrying the presence of God, the baby leapt in Elizabeth's womb. And Father, I just thank you that we will speak today by the unction of the Spirit in such a way that your life leaps in us, your life leaps rejoicing that we have been called for such a time as this, that we have been called the sons of the living God. God bless you.